Coming up on this week's show, the latest on the Games Master TV reboot. The Atari ST that runs a campsite. And we get all nostalgic with Pat the NES Punk. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now check out Sega Master System, a visual compendium, a book that pays tribute to the amazing pixel art, product design and graphics associated with Sega's incredible 8-bit system. Spanning 424 pages and covering 200 games, it is a must-read for all fans of the Master System. You can check that out and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 296, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to the podcast that takes you behind the scenes on the world of retro gaming, talking about old school video games, the systems that we played them on, what people are doing with them today, and of course, a healthy dose of nostalgia laid on as well. You know, we do get some people who say, you don't have to describe what the show's about each week, because, you know, we've done this for nearly six years now, but the fact is... Again, we charted pretty highly in the podcast chart last week. And the podcast chart, when you get in there, it's actually new listeners, isn't it, Ravi? It's new people that are coming through the door. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're getting like first times all time. Constantly growing. And it's like yeah. people kind of go, oh, we, we know what the podcast is. You know, we're, we're already <laughs> listening. But, you know, a lot of people don't know that we've had some absolutely amazing guests on and in the past as well. And, you know, we do cover computer systems a lot and stuff like that. I love to definitely get nerdy in computers. Me and you are very computery, but Joe is the uh, absolute console guy today. And, uh, you know, we've got an amazing guest for him. Yeah, he's definitely going to be in his element on this week's interview. Now, like you said, we've had, you know, there's nearly 300 interviews that you can go back and check out. If you're on your listener to the podcast, welcome. If you've listened since the start, amazing to have you back this week as well. But we've had, you know, CEOs of companies, we've had graphic artists, we've had musicians, we've had programmers, YouTubers. Today is someone who I think it's fair to say we've probably all watched on YouTube and also has an incredible podcast as well. And that is Pat the NES Punk. Now, I know, Joe, you were so hyped to do this interview. I had to let you and Ravi do this one. I was really hyped about this. There's a little bit of a story behind it. We've actually been asking to get Pat on for quite a while. For five um, years. For five years. <laughs> yeah. since, literally since the start of the podcast. He was one of the like content creators we wanted to get on pretty earlier on because it, Pat's done so much. You know, He's the author of like the Ultimate Nintendo Guys Guide for like NES and SNES. I won't give too much away, but he's got more books coming out. You know, he's got his podcast, he's got his YouTube channels, he does all like his flea market madness. He does so much. He literally replied replied to one of your emails from like five years ago, didn't he? And was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh hey Ravi, like really sorry. Um just been going through all my emails. Do you still want me on? And we were like, please. And he was like, Yeah, cool. Like tomorrow kind of thing. So yeah, we we sorted it out. Me and Ravi jumped on it and um like I say, it was just a really fun interview, just kind of hearing about his collection, hearing about his career, what he's doing next, what he's working on at the moment. Um, so definitely, if you're into Nintendo and, you know, PC gaming as well, we actually touched on a bit. Even though he's packed the NES punk, you know, he's 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 everything. You know, like AVGN, he was Nintendo and he's everything. But yeah, it was just a really fun interview, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Like, I, I've loved his channel for a long time. And he, he has stuff like... Um, you know, LGR Thrifts was huge. 
Um, yeah. Like, but but he did flea market madness, which is like yeah. kind of one before that, and he, he was going around looking stuff. So even if you look back at some of the uh, flea market madness videos, it's amazing to see what the state of like the retro game scene was back then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. I'm really excited because I haven't heard this interview yet. So, and I've been a big fan of Pat for many years. And of course, host of the incredible CU podcast as well. That I'm sure if you like our show, you'll enjoy that and probably watch it already on, on YouTube. But Pat, the NES punk, our special guest, he'll be on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, there is lots of news stories to get through this week as well, including a bit of an update on a Games Master. You know, we've been talking about Games Master getting rebooted and coming back, or well, the host being announced now as well. We found out a few more details about where they're filming it and hopefully when it's going to be shown as well. So we'll talk more about that in just a minute. And that amazing story of an Atari ST still in daily use running a campsite. More on that coming up in just a minute. Before we do, though, let's give a big thank you to one of our favourite supporters of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our good friends at Retro Gamer Magazine, who are back once again with an incredible offer, and thank you, Retro Gamer, for supporting our show. I mean, you know, all us guys read Retro Gamer pretty much religiously, don't we? Yeah, man, absolutely. I'm actually looking over to the left of me right now, a big stack of Retro Gamer magazines (laughs) that I can't bring myself to, like, throw away i don't want to be like dan and in 20 years time be, be buying them all back <laughs> yeah. well i give most of mine to ravi my back issues so uh, i started buying them back off ebay again um, but retro gamer i mean it is it's the bible you know the monthly mm. magazine that comes out the one you can obviously get in the high street in your supermarkets subscribe to it as well get it through your door and they cover so much in there and in fact in the current issue um this is one that i was so excited to dive into inside the Nintendo 64, which I think, I mean, I've done videos about the N64 before, and obviously we've talked about it on the podcast. I think in terms of hardware development, that's got one of the most interesting stories of any console in history, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, why I also like it now, which is actually something I'm really interested in, is kind of what games really pushed the N64 to the limits. Because you got to remember, yep. the N64 was like the last cartridge-based console. So it's really fun kind of hearing about what was happening you know, there in the cartridge and in the system and stuff like that. And everybody else, you know, was into, you know, disc systems and stuff like that. But it's not just about N64, this issue. There's also the making of Bart Simpson versus the Space Mutants. Um, also the evolution of Dizzy, which we know a lot of our fans are really into. Um, and also something I'm really interested in is collecting for the Neo Geo Pocket Colour. There's a really cool article in there about that as well. That's amazing. The uh, Neo Geo Pocket Colour. I've never really used one of them or actually seen one of those out in the wild yeah they're hard to come by but they are really 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 interesting yeah and there's actually you know they give you a guide on the kind of the games that are affordable and mm-hmm. um, you know kind of the top tier games that any collector want to have in their collection what you should pay for it as well which i think is quite interesting because yeah. often you know especially if you're getting into a system for the first time um, you're not really sure what the value of games are what you can expect to pay them I and mean, there's some here in this article ranging from uh, anything from around 40 quid to 400 pounds, depending on how deep you want to get with your collecting. Um, and also the stuff for computer fans in here as well. Quite a lot about the Amiga in them this month's issue too. Um, obviously talking quite a lot about the um, the Amiga Mini that's um, going to be out next year as well. So it is a magazine that if you enjoy our podcast, you need to check out Retro Gamer. Now, they've got an amazing offer as well where you can actually get with your Retro Gamer subscription, we'll give you a great offer, and you will get a fantastic retro-themed controller as well. Now, this is either, to fit in with the theme of the current issue, a free N64 tribute or a Mega Drive Bluetooth controller. I love the look of that Tribute 64 controller. Yeah, it's really, really... It's it's like 
what you wanted the N64 controller to be back yeah. in the day. You know, it's the two-prong one rather than the three-prong one, you know, and that comes free with this offer, which is absolutely awesome. And you can use it via USB, or there is a classic N64 port to use it on your original console as well. Uh, the Mega Drive Bluetooth controller works with Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi, iOS, and Switch. Obviously, the N64 one perfect for the um, N64 games on the Nintendo Switch as well. More of them coming over the next couple of months. So you need to check out Retro Gamer Magazine. If you subscribe today, choose your free retro controller and use our exclusive link. So head to magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. And if you already subscribe to Retro Gamer, you can gift the mag to someone else. Obviously, you know, that time of year's coming up, not long till Christmas now. Keep the gift for yourself so you can get six months of Retro Gamer with a retro controller absolutely free. And of course, support the podcast by claiming this offer right now at magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. And I'll put a link to that in our show notes. And a big thank you to Retro Gamer Magazine for supporting our show. So Games Master. Now, whenever we talk about Games Master, I kind of feel like sometimes we have to set it up for people that listen to this podcast outside the UK, because obviously we've done entire episodes about it before, but sometimes it's kind of hard to get across just what a phenomenon Games Master was. I mean, pretty much anyone who was a video gamer in Britain back in the 90s religiously watched Games Master every week. It was it was a fantastic series, and... Uh... It was really interesting. It was on Channel 4 and it ran for like seven seasons. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty amazing. 126 episodes. And uh, of course, Dominic Diamond was a host and we um, talked to him on the show. And it, and it kind of ran from 92 till 1998. So uh, it was covering that really great period of, you know, like 16-bit then going into 32-bit and uh, just some of the madness on there. It was like a, a kind of esports style show where people would play competitively to win a, a golden joystick together and um there's going to be a revival of this show now we've seen a few revivals of other shows like the crystal maze was one and uh mm. to be fair channel four actually put quite a lot of effort into that and they they made a, a great kind of setup um well there's been an announcement and uh they've, they've announced a new filming set which is which is pretty interesting. Um, what, what do you guys think about this location um, for filming? Uh, the Crossness Pumping Station. It looks like this Victorian kind of steampunk uh, pumping station that they're going to be filming in. You know, they're actually, because at the time we're recording this on um, Tuesday, they're, they're actually filming it tonight, aren't they? Um, unfortunately, when in the audience. But I saw them put a tweet out the other day saying they're filming it tonight and tomorrow. And I think the location actually kind of suits the vibe of the original Games Master quite well, because the first series was in a church, wasn't it? And then they had the kind of oil rig Well, set. it was kind of like, yeah, oil rig. Then uh, it was it was based on like kind of redemption and death mm. and, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, um, the, the main host ended up going into hell at one point and then went to heaven and then Atlantis and then a desert island. So I'm not sure where... Victorian steampunk fits in because it, it does feel a bit like the um, other pump house, which was um, on, on season two, the oil rig. Yeah, I mean, this is, it was actually used in the 2009 Sherlock Holmes movie. You might recognise it from there. Yeah, I mean, they describe it here as a Victorian cathedral of ironwork. Looking at it, I mean, it's, you know, it's dark and dingy. Games Master in the past, we had, yeah, so it was a Sunbury Pump House they filmed a series in, Oxford Prison, they even did one in as well. So I think actually in terms of kind of that classic Games Master look, 
it does have that vibe. And I think, you know, visually it's very striking from the pictures that we've seen uh, on this article on Nintendo Life. So I think it will be, you know, a very suitable location for it. And actually it, it proves that they've kind of looked at Games Master's heritage and are trying to remain true to yeah, it. Yeah, may, maybe they're going to have like an alternate timeline. Like, you know, the, the other one was kind of focused around Dominic Diamond. Well, then it went into Dexter Fletcher. But um, we, we don't talk we, about that. We ignore that season. But uh, maybe it's like this is another person in the Games Master universe and it kind of spins off. But um, my question is like the audience, is there an age limit? And like, it, you know, originally the audience um, was was kids. So yeah. it's all kids screaming in there and energy. Do you think it's going to be like fat middle-aged blokes? <laughs> all <kind of> screaming. <laughs> what, us free? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Top Gear or something, you know. Well, that's an interesting question because they did put this out on Twitter. They just said, you know, if you want to be part of the audience, um, come along. It said you could be mere inches from an actual golden joystick. So the golden joystick is going to be back. There's going to be challenges as well. Um, and also they've announced the host. Now, this is something actually we were pretty pleased to see because there's been a lot of talk about who's going to replace Dominic Diamond because Dominic was such a big part of the show. And when they tried a series without him, the Dexter Fletcher one didn't work very well. And most people kind of disregard that series but actually is another scottish comedian and it's um, a guy called robert florence now robert's actually got quite a big background in gaming hasn't he yeah so he's he's uh he's, he's quite a funny one you may remember it from the sketch uh where he's on about going to floor 11 on a automatic uh, speech recognition lift and they get stuck in and end up screaming at it he's a very funny guy and you know he's got that sarcastic kind of vibe but also he's got the history of gaming probably more of a history of gaming than Dominic Diamond actually had. Yeah. Um, Video uh, Guidance, uh, one of his shows that was on BBC Scotland, it started off as like a small show and then it got like higher commissioned and uh, it, it was quite cold actually and it was really funny and it's regarded as like one of the one of the top kind of video game TV shows and that went on 40 episodes and uh, then Consylvania as well. Um, which went on for 80 episodes. So, you know, he's got a good history of that. But also, I was looking that there's two other hosts. So um, there's uh, Tyrell Logan as well, who seems to be like a, a comedian, a, a, a social media kind of dude. And then there's Frankie Ward, and she's um, she's actually uh, eSports like host, stage host. Mm. So she's hosted stuff for like Counter-Strike, PUBG. Um, uh, she's, she's hosted DreamHack. And uh, you know she she's kind of got that commentary style, which which uh, people used to have on Games Master. Who was the guy that did it from Namco? Oh, I can never remember his name. But they they they'd have a guy from Namco who'd come on and talk about all the special moves, and they'd have magazine journalists who come on every week. And you know, then obviously magazines were the main thing. That's why they got a lot of magazine uh, writers to come and kind of commentate on the games. But I think you're right. Her having that esports background. I think that's going to work well on the show. Yeah, because it wasn't like a, a kind of just about the one person. Uh, mm. it, it was it was about you know the, the the supporting cast as well, like guys like Dave Perry in there as well, and uh, Julian Jazzarignal, and you know um, uh, the people from the industry that would come in and also get involved. So there might be like a guest guest side host as well or something what do you think yeah well i think actually looking at this because we talked about when you know the news was first announced back in the you know the start of the summer and we were all very skeptical as to what it's going to be like uh, but i think looking at this with the set and the team that they've got there as well i mean the fact that they've got another scottish comedian and you know 
he's obviously worked with guys like Limmy on, you know, Consolvanian video guy. He'd be and, a and good host as well, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. whether it'll be a cameo. In there. We don't know who's going to be the games master yet, though, and there's a lot of talk that, you know, Patrick Stewart might do it, which I think, again, would give it a bit more geek credential. Brian Blessed, it's got to be Brian Blessed. <laughs> He'd be amazing. <laughs> but um, I'm actually quite excited to see how this turns out. Now, it's going to be three 60-minute episodes. The bit that some people are whinging about is the fact that it's going to focus on celebrities doing battle against each other. But you think Games Master back in the day, I mean, it had like Take That on there and people of Neighbours and Hollyoaks and that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It was, it's nothing it was, new. It was all about celebrities, apart from they'd yeah. occasionally have the kids on. And to be honest, I think the celebrity ones, for me, watching them, were always a bit more fun. Um, yeah. The kid ones would just kind of be two angry kids trying to fight each other, where the celebrities would be like, oh, let's see how, uh, you know, Vinnie Jones can actually play this football game. And it helped that Dominic Diamond, like, ripped the pee out of them, you know. He'd always make fun of them and everything. And I think, obviously, you know, the host that we've got now, I think that Robert will probably do that kind of same kind of sarcasm and, you know, very witty humour. So I'm actually quite hyped for this now. I've got to say, I think, you know, from what we've seen of it so far, it sounds like they're going in the right direction. Yeah, um, and apparently I, I want to watch back uh, Consylvania and uh, kind of, you know, <laughs> get into that humour and that vibe because I think a lot of that's going to cross over onto it. Well, they're filming it this week, so um, hopefully it's going to land on uh, YouTube first. Apparently, they're going to put the three episodes up there, and then they're going to be shown on E4 um, before the end of the year. So looks like we haven't got long to wait. Do you kind of feel like this is a bit of a test to see whether it goes down well or whether they should bring it back? I don't know, because like I thought Crystal Maze, when that came on, that was mm. wicked. I watched every one, and like, it was really funny. And uh, that hasn't come back, has it? Like I think no. they did a season, and then it just like faded away. So... I don't know. Maybe they're thinking they can, like like before, um, Dominic Diamond told us that it actually worked out on a Channel 4 sports section. That's where it actually got a lot of funding from and it, and it was counted yeah. as sports. So maybe they're thinking this could be a way into esports and justifying some of the budget uh, through through sports rather than, uh, you know, showing like football or the Olympics or something. So we did hear that it's going to be a mixture I think of modern games and retro games are going to be in there as well. So obviously, you know, they want to appeal to the original fans of Games Master by the sound of it, but hopefully try and get some, you know, new audience in there, like you said. So it's hopefully not just all like middle-aged blokes. There will be some young blood on there as well. But um, yeah, I'll say I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Yeah, I'm more excited than I was, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll keep an eye on that. And as we hear more, we'll let you know. And I'll link up um, those two articles in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this is something that I know you're hyped about, Joe. Um, a Super Nintendo classic that is back. Yeah, so we've got... I am hyped, but I've got my res- reservations, as I always do. So this is ActRaiser Renaissance. So this is a remake of ActRaiser, you know, the classic Super Nintendo game. I'm not too sure if you guys are familiar with it at all. I'd never played this before, no. So I guess you're a fan. Kind of, What is it then? Is this kind of a, it looks like a kind of a run and jump platformer kind of game. You're not wrong. Okay, so <laughs> ActRaiser is a weird one, ActRaiser. So there was two ActRaiser games for the Super Nintendo. This is a remake of the first one. So ActRaiser essentially is you played as God. And it was a God sim, very similar to Civilization. And you you know, had a top-down view and, you know, in the graphics and the gameplay and stuff was quite primitive because it's an early Super Nintendo game, but you make your city, you know, you make houses for your villages and farms and stuff like that. But then what happens is as you expand your town, you come across like caves and volcanoes and stuff that have monsters in them. And when that happens, the game 
becomes an action platformer and you play as like a like i can only describe it as like a greek mythology like warrior and you go through mm. fighting like the monsters and stuff and it becomes a classic super nintendo action platformer this looks um it reminds me of black and white actually yes yeah, just, just seeing the uh, kind of yeah. god section yeah, yeah. It, it is really similar to that you know when the first game came out in in japan in 1990 and then the sequel they dropped the civilization god sim style of the game and it was just an action platformer and a lot of people were quite disappointed in that so this is the first act razor game we've had since then and like i say it's pretty much a straight up remake of the first game but it looks a little bit more in depth the god sim bit you know from the screenshots and the videos i've seen looks a lot more in depth and then the platforming part looks like it has a lot more of rpg kind of elements you know with you know you can upgrade your health bar and your magic power and level up and stuff like that um but it looks pretty true to the original game and it's been published by square enix you know who are behind like the final fantasy games and stuff like that so it's got a nice look and polish to it and it is already out it got announced at nintendo Di- nintendo direct and then literally came out like the next day so we're a little bit late to the party here it has been out for about a week now um, and it's getting some pretty good reviews, and it's on the Switch, and it is also on PC. Um, but the developer for it is an interesting one, because um, Quintet, who developed the original game, have long since been disbanded. So it's been developed by a company called Sonic Powered, who are a Japanese developers, but they're famous for doing flight simulator games. Um, right, okay. You know, and they've been doing them for a while, by the looks of things, like, you know, like, you know, some of them came out in like the late 2000s and stuff. So, you know, but looking at their back catalog, I could be completely wrong here, but from just from Googling it and stuff, they haven't kind of done any sort of like action platformers and stuff. But so far from a few of the YouTube videos and stuff I've watched on the game, people are, you know, are, are pretty hyped about it, you know, pretty interested in it. And it's, you know, again, you know, it looks nice as well. So I think I'll have to get my hands on it for the Switch. Um, well, I'm looking here. There's um, a video of the um, the PlayStation 4 footage, and actually, it looks really nice. Oh, is it on PlayStation 4 as well? Yeah, I okay. think it's on. My, I'm reading here; it might be a mobile version of it as well. Oh, looks wow. like they put it out in quite quite a lot of different things all at once. Okay, brilliant. Um, but it's it's not. I mean, I've, I've, the title was familiar, but yeah, when you first mentioned it, and I saw that screenshot, I remembered it. You know, as like a yeah a Civ style game, yeah. something like SimCity. But having that weird kind of mixture of a kind of a god game and then switching up into a platformer that sounds really unique i, I think i've ever played anything like that before. yeah you know and it, it's really cool because you have like in the original and it's the same in this one you've got like a little angel who comes and mm. talks to you and he's like you know the villagers have come across a cave full of monsters do you want to go fight them for it and if you don't the village gets like destroyed <laughs> so mm. you know it, it it's cool like you know and it's you know it's a very early like you say it's a very early Civ game, you know, God kind of game, and it has got that kind of black and white vibe to it, like Ravi said. So I could see Ravi enjoying it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, this looks like something I could get into because once you get like bored of the strategy, you can just go and fight things and do some <laughs> platforming, you know. Exactly. Yeah, well, it's out on the Switch, PlayStation 4, iOS, Android, and PC, so there is a mobile version as well. Um, priced at, I've got US pricing $29.99. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, getting this kind of treatment for classic games, especially, we've talked about it recently, the fact that these more niche games seem to be getting a bit of love now and getting revisited, which I think is very cool. You know, we've all bought, like, the the main retro games so many times over the years, but stuff like this, uh, I imagine, had a bit of a cult following back in the day. Yeah, it's, it's nice it, to give it an update. It's nice not to buy Streets of Rage 2 
for like the 50th yeah. time. It's nice to actually see a game that's long been <laughs> forgotten, you know, be revived. You know, have a renaissance, excuse the pun. <laughs> yeah, so that's available now if you want to check it out this weekend. Now, I love this video. Um, this is the title on PC Gamers article is Dutch Legend has been running a campsite using a 1986 Atari ST. And he even wrote his own software to do this as well. Now, this is a YouTuber who, um, he does some really interesting things. He's called uh, Victor Bart, and he's all about retro gaming and retro computers, you know, building old machines and that kind of thing too. But actually, he was uh, camping at a campsite in a, a place called Konigsbosch in the Dutch province of Limburg. And he found a campsite that actually all the day-to-day running at the campsite has been done since 1986 on an original Atari ST. This is amazing. We covered that um, C64 that was running the school fire system, uh, didn't we? Uh, it was an Amiga, ago. wasn't it? It was the Amiga doing the, oh, yeah. the school air conditioning. Air conditioning, and the, yeah, not fire system. Yeah. God, that would be deadly, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, just that. <laughs> yeah. And then we had the, the Commodore 64 that was running a garage, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was it, a turning kind of thing in a garage where um, this is a, an Atari ST and he's actually got the original monitor, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, he's it's been running since 1986 and... Um, this guy, uh, Frank Boss, Franz Boss, he's actually programmed it himself. So um, he's created this little program, and it looks really cool, actually. It looks like if he did a little bit of conversion, it could be a good little new homebrew title, to be honest. Um, it's, it's Campsite Simulator. Yeah, Campsite Sim. And it's got him on the front, um, on the actual screen, with like a, a an old moustache in the kind of 80s as well, which is pretty cool. <laughs> He's got a picture of himself, I think, at, at the very beginning. Um, but it's a reservation program, basically, for for the slots in the uh, campsite. And, uh, mm. you know, each each plot is kind of mapped out on the um, Atari. But it's done really well. It looks like, you know, he's properly put some effort in this and uh, programmed it. And his his campsite must not have changed since the 80s as well. Yeah, like <laughs> unless he's done some modern updates on it, but um, it's amazing. He says, you know, this actually boots quicker than his uh, desktop PC, and and he could put a booking in straight away. And uh, it's kind of that philosophy. If if it's not broke, then uh, why why change it? You know, I love in the video he asked him, you know, C- can you export that to a modern PC? And he said, no, it's re- it's stuck on the ST really. But like you said, he enjoys using it because he said, you know, he's already done something by the time a modern PC with Windows had booted up and uh, done Windows updates and all that kind of thing. And I think there is something to be said for the simplicity of retro machines to be able to do like a single task that it was dedicated to do. Because he said he leaves it powered up. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a seasonal business. It's only open about six months of the year, but actually leaves it on day and night for six months of the year, every year, you know, since 1986. And it's still running so in terms of the value he's got from that machine. And if you watch a video as well, he's actually done a few kind of modern upgrades to the machine as well. So it looks like he's actually quite an enthusiast of the ST, and I imagine he's probably involved in, like, you know, ST forums and that kind of thing. He's actually got a few, like, um, modern additions to the machine too to kind of, you know, keep it ticking over. But I think it's amazing when you see stuff like this, especially, I mean, he doesn't kind of go into how he found this guy, but if it was just something he stumbled across, I think that's extremely cool. I, I reckon there's probably loads of people with, with different I, kind of I, I things I was everywhere. literally about to say this. You know, when you think you go into like the doctors or whatever, you don't see what computer like the receptionist is using like behind 
a gas or two. Or you know, they could be on anything. <laughs> Like just pretending they've just got a pen and paper, really. But yeah, no, it's 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 interesting to see. Like 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 Ravi says, I wonder how many people out there are still on these things. I must say though, uh, it, it does need retro brighting. Has <laughs> it has got a lot of the sun? The monitor's looking in nice condition, but that is that is a yellow <laughs> Atari ST there. I remember being a kid and going to the dentist. My local dentist ran everything on a Commodore Plus Four. Mm. And this would have been in about God ninety one ninety two. They were still rocking that, um, and it had like the the Commodore Plus Four disc drive. They had the official monitor. They had the um, the printer and everything as well. And I had one at home. Um, on mine, I just had the cassette drive because I couldn't afford the disc drive or anything like that. And I always used to go in and like see it and like kind of look at it, you know, like drooling over it, thinking, God, I'd love to have that set up. And then one day I came in and it had gone. And I said to the dentist, oh, what happened to your Commodore? He went, um, oh, yeah, we replaced it with the PC and we threw it away. And I was like, oh, I would have loved that disk drive. I said, if you'd asked, we'd have given you it. He said, yeah, we put it in the skip last week. So I've kicked myself for like 30 years about that now. But, yeah, it does make you wonder like kind of how many of them are just like, you know, doing mundane tasks around the world. I did see a guy actually on Twitter that ran his, um, I think it was the lighting in his house off an Acorn Archimedes that's mounted on the wall in his garage. <laughs> I've got loads of old computers lying around. I always think I should probably do something like that just for fun. I was going to say, it would be a good distraction in the dentist sitting there looking at the computer and wondering, oh, what games can I play on there whilst your teeth are getting drilled or something? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it is very, very cool. And uh, long may the Atari ST continue to um, run that campsite. Very cool video as well. I'll link that up in our show notes. Now, before we get into our chat with uh, Pat the NES Punk, This is something that um, I didn't think I'd see anytime soon. Obviously, one of the most famous games on the Super Nintendo, big arcade title as well, but to me it's always been a Super Nintendo game, really. It's a logical platform. Street Fighter 2, and it turns out someone is doing a backport of Street Fighter 2 to run on the NES. It had to be done, because Street Fighter 2, there's so many versions of Street Fighter 2, and I feel like it's like one of the most ported games of all time. It was on everything. Isn't it even on the, on the ZX Spectrum, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was on like the ZX Spectrum. It was on, you know, it was on the, uh, I think it was on the Atari ST. <laughs> like, I wouldn't yeah, be surprised. It was. it was on everything, but it wasn't on the NES, surprisingly. So, um, so a, a hacker, I guess, you know, a, a home brewer who goes by the name of Fox Cunning on uh, Twitter has been working on this for a little while now. And you know what? I don't know if you guys have watched the video. It looks pretty damn playable compared to some of these like ZX Spectrum versions and stuff. Like it looks really, really, really fluid and like sounds really, really nice. Don't know if he's got anything extra going on in there, you know, in terms of like, you know, chips and stuff like that. And, you know, but, you know, if he's just using original hardware, but for an 8-bit version of Street Fighter 2, this is pretty impressive, guys. Yeah, I think I think this is uh, it's just like a ROM hack, but I I think yeah. it's not like the Doom version where you know it had a Raspberry Pi inside the car no, and, and yeah. it did all this kind of fancy stuff. I think this is actually like you know a proper raw version that works. Um, mm. The sprites are really a lot smaller, aren't they? They've they've massively reduced it. And, yes, uh, the the sprites are. I'll give you that. The sprites are a lot lot smaller. You know, when we we see more of the stage more than anything and obviously you know the original street fighter 2 had a lot of animation going on in the background as well as like lots of frames of animation for the characters which 
you know, they've had to drop in this version with it being, you know, 8-bit. But considering what other 8-bit versions of this game were out there, it looks stunning compared to those versions. Yeah. It looks even better than some 16-bit versions. The Amiga one springs to mind. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you've just got, um, uh, from Gareth Hamer, you just got the, uh, what is it, Mortal Kombat. Um, yes, I have been two very, for the Amiga, and that's very kindly terrible. donated uh, <laughs> Mortal Kombat 2 to me for the Amiga. So my ever-growing Amiga collection, which now consists of Mortal Kombat 1 and 2. But yes, I would also like Street Fighter 2 for the NES, if at all possible, if Fox Cunning is listening and wants to put it on some cartridges for us. <laughs> it actually looks very technically impressive because it looks really colourful. It's, it's got that colour palette, game. hasn't it? It's got it, like yeah. uh, I don't know how they've done the, that. the kind of browns and the, the, the that blue is is definitely the kind of colour. But um, it, it does th- look like there's lots more sh- shades in there than usual. You know what? I didn't think, I don't know. Like I, I, I thought to me, you know, I'm a little bit more NES than you guys I'd like to think. I didn't think there was anything extra kind of going on there. I thought it was more that kind of had that NES kind of aesthetic to it. You know, I was more impressed with the frame rate, you know, the smoothness of the game. Yeah, 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 that that, that is nice, definitely, yeah. And and also the scrolling of the screen as well. Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah. Even in terms of like, you know, the colours they've got on the sprites there as well and some of like the shading and the reflections and the, you know, even that you don't normally see that on NES games. I mean, obviously... People have had like, you know, nearly 40 years to get to grips with the system. So maybe they can yeah. do more tricks with it now. But yeah, it's really impressive port though, I think. So this is in development now. Hopefully, you know, I'm hoping Capcom don't shut it down the minute it gets finalised oh, yeah. and uploaded as, as generally happens. But, um, you know, for stuff like that, if they're, I always think, you know, with projects like this, if they're never going to do an NES version, which I can't imagine Capcom ever would, it would be nice just to let the fans have it and just have fun just with it. Just license it and then you'll get some money. <laughs> yeah, it, it's strange when they're like, they just shut these things down. And you're just like, well, you're not going to do an NES version of it now. It's been 30 years, you know what I mean? So yeah, very cool to see it on Nintendo's 8-bit platform. So if you want to check that out and everything else we talk about, you'll find it all in our show notes on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now let's take a moment to give a big thank you to another amazing supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our good friends at ExpressVPN. Now the thing is, going online without ExpressVPN, that's kind of like, how's this for an analogy? It's like getting changed while leaving your window wide open with the lights on. You might not have anything to hide, but why give random creeps? a chance to invade your privacy. So when you go online without a VPN, thing is, even your internet service provider, they can see every website that you visit, obviously. And we've talked about this before, that actually some ISPs in America we've heard about have actually been selling this information legally without your consent to ad companies, tech giants, who then use your data to target you. But using something like ExpressVPN, ISPs can't actually see what you're doing, and your identity is all completely anonymous by their secure VPN server and encrypted for maximum protection. Now, Ravi, you're like our resident, you know, privacy advocate. I know you've used ExpressVPN for years, and you wouldn't dream of going online without a VPN. No, I, I, I'm firing it up now on my new Mac, actually, and uh, you know, it mm. works on lots of different systems. You can have it on your phone as well, and uh, your laptop. Even have it on your router, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, there's one thing that really annoys me when I go online, and I've just bought something, and then. It suggests that thing, again, for me to buy, but in a million different places. Uh, If you're using a VPN, then, you know, it's not going to be getting any data about that kind of history and, uh, 
you're not going to get targeted advertising as well, which is quite nice. It, it's just really fast as well. Like you could just fire it up what one click of the button and uh, you don't even notice that you're on it. I'm actually on ExpressVPN as we're recording this podcast. And that's the thing. I mean, you mentioned then about the fact that, you know, advertisers snooping on you. I don't know if you guys have ever had this. Have you ever just kind of, and I don't know if this is a thing that happens, but I'm not the only one that said this. You'll occasionally talk to someone with your phone in your pocket, or you might have like an Amazon Echo or something in the corner, and you'll have a conversation with someone. And then later on, I'll go on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll get targeted an ad about that thing I was talking about. Have you guys ever had that? <laughs> I don't know. You're getting paranoid. Every day. Every day. No, I don't think he's paranoid. I, I, I completely agree with Dan there, you know, and VPNs, you know, ExpressVPN is the way forward to stop that, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, secure your online activity right now and, of course, support the podcast. Head to this website and you'll actually get three months free on an ExpressVPN subscription. So head to expressvpn.com slash retro, expressvpn.com slash retro. Get three months free of ExpressVPN and support the podcast. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their support. Now let's give a big thank you to the people that make the podcast possible each and every week. This is the lifeblood of the Retro Hour, our incredible patrons. And I was actually pleased to see, at the time of recording this, it blew my mind that we're now actually on 240 patrons. Normally when I say that, though, we lose about seven. <laughs> so at the time of recording <laughs> this, we're on about 240 now, which um, we honestly, it blows my mind each time we get even just you know one new patron. But the fact that that many people like our little show and want to help us out and make sure that we still bring it out every single week and help us with the running cost of it as well. It is truly humbling, isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. You know, I, I've, I think without the patrons, we wouldn't still be going actually. And, uh, you know, they've helped provide us with equipment for the studio and they've, they've really helped support the idea of what the podcast is. And, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of chat and stuff. And we, we like to kind of deliver every week, a new guest and uh you yeah. know that's pretty challenging doing all the research and <laughs> you know it, it does take up a lot of time and it, it's just fantastic to have that kind of patron group there as well to support us and kind of takes the edge off and uh means that we can like stay independent as well it's absolutely fantastic and i think you made a good point there as well about the fact that you know it lets us focus on just doing the show and you know often I appear on other podcasts and, you know, you've, you guys have done it as well on magazine interviews. And they always ask, you know, what's kind of the thing you wish you knew when you went into doing a weekly podcast? And that is how much work is actually involved in it. That was it. When when Dan said, you know, let's do a weekly podcast. We're like, okay, yeah, fine. With a guest <laughs> every week. About a year later, we're like, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, between the three of us, I think it's pretty much a full-time job, isn't it? You know, it would be one person's full-time job. Yeah. So the fact that our patrons, you know, just mean that we can do it and not have to worry about the financial side of it and obviously um, pays for all the running costs as well. We hugely appreciate that. And we're not all take, take, take. We give back, don't we, Joe? Oh, God, you always put me on the spot. But, yeah, <laughs> we do like to give back. Um, so one thing we've been doing recently is, you know, we do try to keep the retro hour to an hour. So we do do a few Ish. extra new stories <laughs> uh, for our Patreon, uh, for our patrons. And um, we also do one of my favourite things, um, the After Hours podcast, which is our exclusive yeah. monthly, you know, behind the scenes uh, podcast where, you know, we do a lot of like our opinions on consoles and we kind of go through the video game years and stuff like that. And then we also do a monthly hangout where we all get together uh, on Google and uh, on Google Meet. Is it Google Hangout? Google Meets? 
same thing now yeah. <laughs> we all get where we all get together on google hangouts and you know we just have a couple of hours on a sunday night and just you know talk to everybody you know and the last one it was about 40 people there which you know it's just incredible that people you know want to come and talk to us and not just talk to us but we kind of have like an online community with it where we just kind of share our yep. stories and share what we've picked up and stuff like that but you know it's just absolutely awesome that people support us like that yeah, so if you'd like to join in, obviously get access to um, the After Hours Patrons exclusive podcast, join us for the Hangouts as well. But really just, you know, support the show, make sure we can bring it out every week, we'd hugely appreciate it. And you'll find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest patrons. Thank you, Simon Rose. F Cats. James Dunn. OC. And Richard Hawley who all donated into our Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to do the same, all the details are on our website at theretrohour.com. Right next, we're going to get seriously nostalgic with our special guest, Pat the NES Punk, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast with Pat Contre, a.k.a. Pat the NES Punk. Hi, Pat. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me aboard. Awesome, man. Thanks for having, thanks for having us. Um, so we like to start every interview with the same question to all of our guests. What is your first ever video game memory? My first video game memory was probably my father bringing home uh, the Coleco Telstar Ranger and setting it up upstairs on a small, probably 13-inch black and white uh, TV. Mm. Coleco Telstar Ranger was a, a typical Pong clone. You had several different types of games and variants of, of Pong or electronic tennis is a proper term. There was even like a high lie one. And it came with a big plastic Magnum revolver looking pistol yeah. to do a couple of, of, of light gun games on the screen. And for what I remember of it was that it ate those batteries alive. Like you, you got maybe an hour out of like it was like four to six D giant D batteries, mm-hmm. whatever the big ones were C or D's. And back then, I just remember playing it and be like, wow, this is pretty cool. Uh, so that's pretty early. And then also going to my cousins and playing the Atari 2600, watching them play uh, games like Spider-Man. It's probably the only one I could probably play by myself. Watch them play Adventure and games of that nature. Well, they were kind of like those D-cell batteries were like huge, weren't they? Ghetto Blaster um, batteries. Yeah. And the thing about those all those Pong clones in the 70s, almost all of them did not include an AC adapter. A lot of them had mail away registration cards that were like, okay, if you want the AC adapter, send us five bucks or whatever it was, $3. Hmm. And I think my father eventually bought that. So I get kind of excited if I go to the swap meter flea market um, and find one of these Pong clones and you see like the actual AC adapter that was made for it because that's probably hard to find depending upon the model. Well, what what did you think of the 2600 when you first played it? And, and did it kind of blow you away? Uh, I, I guess naturally it did because it's a video game, right? And when you, you never saw a video game before, <laughs> it would blow you away. We're talking, this is probably 84, mm. about maybe early 85 when I first saw these things. This is before my, my father bought an IBM XT. I want to say it was later in 85 or perhaps early early 86. So it was really my first exposure. So it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to think about like your first gaming experience because you have nothing to compare it to but i can imagine it being like a fun toy or something that's like an elaborate board game that's interactive it's Mm -hmm. almost like you wish you can go back to that point in time 
and wipe your knowledge so you can see what a video game was for the first time. The only analogy that you can have to the situation to see that reaction is you can go back. Uh, it's on YouTube. There was a game show where uh, the Magnavox showed off the Odyssey, mm. uh, you know, the, the very first video game console, which has its 50th anniversary next year uh, from the brilliant Ralph Bear. And they had to guess what the two people were playing. And they were just playing that early version of Pong or really table tennis because that came before Pong. Uh, Bushnell might have got the idea for that from <laughs> from Ralph Bear. <laughs> um, and you can see that the, the, the celebrity contestants struggled to come up with the thought of what the people are doing. Uh, yeah. It was behind like it was behind like a um, I don't know if, if either of you have, if you, have either of you two uh, seen this clip. I've not seen the clip, but I, I'm, I'm familiar with the Odyssey. Yeah. Yeah. So they're struggling to come up with with the answer to the question. What are these two people doing? You see that you see this. It was a, a Magnavox rep and the yeah. game show hosts were, were fiddling with something, but they couldn't see. And they're like, oh, you're doing something with the TV. And the, the, the people had no clue what they were doing or what they could possibly be doing because there was no video games. And, mm-hmm. and so it's a really interesting idea to think about that. This entertainment medium, really the last one, is only 50 years old. That's not really old at all. No, no, it's crazy when you think about it, isn't it? You um, you mentioned there that your your dad bought the IBM X, which I had read online as well. Was there much gaming to be had on it? What was that like? Yeah, so, so the XT was, you know, that was the du jour IBM clone. Okay. Uh, basically, a lot of different companies made them. Uh, if, I, if I can probably go on eBay and find the exact model, and yeah, there was a lot of a lot of games because a lot of the games were released simultaneously on Commodore in the U.S., the Apple II, and the IBM PC. Mm-hmm. Those are the three uh, biggest, probably the only ones you could get. I'm mm-hmm. trying to think at the time. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can get a TRS-80 somewhere, but no, almost no one had those. Almost no one had a TI-99. If you go, if you walked into any, we had electronic boutique or, you know, or egghead, egghead software, like electronic boutique eventually was swallowed up by, you know, uh, GameStop. Uh, So you walk into an electronic boutique and you would see there would be an Apple section, probably there'd be a Commodore section and there'd be an IBM section. I'm not even sure how big the Commodore section would have been or the Apple one, but I do, because obviously we had the IBM, so I go right to the IBM section, but I do remember the different sections uh, there. And once you got to, I think the later eighties uh, and the Amiga, there was an Amiga section I re- remember, but that was so highfalutin back then. Yeah. Like that was like I I don't know how how much it cost to get a, an Amiga back then, but I can imagine it wasn't cheap at all. So I remember that section being pretty small in comparison. Yeah, we had EB like later on. Uh, well, they they uh, went to EB actually. That's what they ended up calling themselves, and we had them like later on into the nineties, and then they kind of disappeared are they are they still around in america no they're all i mean everything swallowed gamestop swallowed up obviously electronic boutique software etc was the other big you had software etc electronic boutique egghead software those were the three smaller rent uh, excuse me retail chains for computer software in the u.s and then you got the big boys came up in like the early to mid 90s you got uh computer city and comp usa comp usa is still around uh computer city i believe might exist in name only some might have bought them out as like an online retailer but that's basically what happened so then you have software etc an electronic boutique and egghead that eventually i don't know what happened to egghead but software etc got swallowed up by gamestop and, and so did electronic boutique around the same time where they're, where they're buying up funko land which was a big uh retail chain in the u.s for for uh, used games 
by so by the late 90s as we know like funk you know all of them were get, being bought out by gamestop unfortunately well when you were seven your parents uh, bought you a nas um did, did many of your friends have that and and was it really exciting kind of getting on that system for the first time i'm sorry they bought me a what I'm kidding. An NES uh, Rambi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, they bought, they bought, uh, so, so I asked her for Christmas. I went over to my, my cousins, uh, excuse me. I went over to my, my friends early. This was like early second grade. This is my, it was probably like September or October of 87. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to, you have to keep in mind that 87 is really the year the NES took off. It didn't really yeah. do much in the first year and a half. It was, it was, a it was a limited a market for the first six to eight months in the U S it was the New York, New Jersey area. They they literally, you know, stayed in a you know a hotel in New Jersey. Howard Phillips and the team they would set up, go to New York and northern New Jersey. And then it was pretty quiet in '86. I was unaware, yeah, of the NES until '87, I believe. That's probably when I started to see commercials. Maybe that's the first time I saw like the Zelda commercial, maybe you know, mm-hmm. and real and started seeing more advertisements like in the Sunday, you know, the circular ads. I don't know if they still have them. You know, they come with the Sunday, you know, the funnies, the comics, and then they'd be like, okay, here's like the department store stuff, what's on sale this week. So I always would look at obviously the toys, you look at the games, and you see, oh, here's the NES for sale. And then they really started to push it more. And I, that's when I knew classmates that had, it, including my friend Kevin. And that's when I, I played it for the first time in 87. We played uh, probably Super Mario. I know for sure we played Kung Fu because that game was ingrained in my memory playing that in, in his basement on his old console TV. You know, probably a console TV from like the late 70s, a color TV mm-hmm. was that old. Um, and we might have played Top Gun as well, but I'm not sure about that. And after that point, I begged my parents to get to get uh, a, a Nintendo, you know, every week. They knew I wanted it. So I got it that Christmas. I, I received the um, I, I put I posted the picture on my Instagram and on Facebook last year. My, my father found a picture from that Christmas, which was great. You, you see me, my little chubby face holding the NES. <laughs> In my hand, it was the console version, that which was a cheaper version. Yeah, um, and then it came with Super Mario Brothers. And uh, what was that like? You know, finally having it in your own home and stuff. You know, how did that feel? What games did you want to get straight away? Was it like Zelda and stuff like that? So the feeling was like that. That was probably the greatest Christmas present ever. Mm. Um, it's almost like the Red Rider BB gun from A Christmas Story, where it's <laughs> yeah. like, wow, this is going to be like the the memory I have. There's obviously I got like GI Joe stuff that year. Mm. Uh, or action force as i say across the pond um yeah. <laughs> and, I, and i got toys like that but you like getting getting a video game console that's almost like it, it it opens up a whole new like childhood world to you i guess you can say yeah versus yeah. just like a toy does that make sense because it's like this experience that's all new yeah and yeah. it's like fresh all the time mm. um so that christmas my uncle had gotten me i got two other games that christmas i got spy hunter and Akari Warriors. One is better mm-hmm. than the other. Um, <laughs> and because I because I played both of them in the arcade. And so my, my parents and my uncle realized that. So I got those two other games. And then by I want to say probably within four or five months, uh, probably pretty quick, probably one of the first games that was purchased for me after that was The Legend of Zelda for both my yeah. sister and me. And then Rygar soon after that. And then I think, you know, Top Gun, Double Dribble. Those are the those are probably the first handful of games I had. Not a too bad of selection, then. <laughs> so um, in the UK, we were really Sega-based. You know, we had the Master System and the Mega Drive were really big over here. And obviously, we had a lot of playground rivalry between Nintendo and Sega. Was it like that back home for you, you know, growing up? Or was it all Nintendo? There was not a lot of Sega Master System stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the marketing was horrible. 
in the U.S. I remember seeing some commercials, mm. but you know, when I'm probably seven years old, maybe by even by '88 though in the U.S. it was dead. The console was was just about dead yeah. by '88 here. It, it had like a year and a half and a half maybe to get out there, but it got just demolished by the NES for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, I remember seeing it. I remember it being interesting in the commercials because the colors were were more uh, brighter, it seemed, mm-hmm. more livelier. It just seemed like, well, okay, this is something different. Like I, I, I remember playing OutRun at like my pizzeria and seeing an arcade. So I'm like, okay, cool. This is a system that has OutRun. This is a system that's Space Harrier. So I remember that feeling. And I liked how like the light phaser looked different. It just looked like a sleek, nice system. You know, the NES mm. is kind of ugly and plain looking when you look mm. at it. Um, so I always remember being interested in it, but never really knew anyone that had it because, you know, it, no one really had it here. Uh, but then I remember going to a yard sale when I was uh, must have been nine and someone was selling it. It was an old uh, couple must have been selling like their grandsons or stuff. It had the, the original master system. It had like. 10 games with it and my father didn't buy it for me and i or let me buy it and i was upset because i got that was like the, almost like my it would have been my, my first alternate console yeah so so what happened when was i didn't realize like we, by the time you go to toys r us by like 90 like i remember going to toys r us and the only thing they had left they had no master systems or this might be in early 91 they had no master systems left at toys r us they could have sold us the, the literally the, the display model I remember them saying that they still remember if, you, if you've ever seen pictures of, of Toys R Us in the U.S., you'd have like the aisle of consoles and they were under yeah. glass. They were out like like uh, not in the box. They were just out on display nicely. You'd walk the whole aisle separate. They were separate from where the games were. The games were in their own se- section. Uh, the only one they had was that one. But I remember they said we can give it to you, but we can't warranty that it'll work. We can yeah. call that. So uh I somehow found out that Kitty City, which was the other was was the other main rival besides KB Toy Stores, they had it, but they had the Sega the Sega Master System too mm. down the road. So for some reason they were still the, the partner, and maybe because that was relation the relationship with Tonka, maybe. Yeah. So they had fully stocked a fully stocked Sega Master System game selection at Kitty City, literally 10, 15 minutes down the road from Toys R Us, and they had the Master System too there. Toys R Us didn't have almost anything. So I think that was funny that they were still pushing it. I think I remember going there and seeing Sonic for Master System there. So it must have been 91, more I think about it. Yeah, it, was, it must have been 91. And we and I got the Master System too. Yeah. And the version we had here had, unfortunately, didn't have Sonic uh, packed in. It was Alex Kid Miracle World <laughs> with the packed one. So I got that. And I remember getting, um, I believe, Rampage. Mm. Those are like the only games I had. In my, and then I got Rostan. I asked for Ross because I played that in the arcade. It really was the arcade system. And then I, we, I returned it that Christmas to get the money to get a Super Nintendo. So, <laughs> And uh, what about the Genesis? What was the impact when that came? What was that like? Oh, that was huge. Mm. I mean, you had kids talking about that. That was the, the first real competitor, mm. obviously. Um, the commercials, uh, when that summer of 89, those commercials... By the time you, by the time you got back to school, kids are like, "Wow, I want to get this," or "This looks interesting." You're, or I, I, my friend had already gotten one. He got the Alter B set. Mm. Kid in the neighborhood named Billy. So it would you knew it was going to be a challenger just because it was so head and shoulders above. You know, with it was true arcade quality. Mm. It was like that was like the first console that was truly emulating the arcade or close to it. Was the Sega Genesis, uh, at least in North America. 
if you want to go back to some of the older consoles like yeah the 7800 i guess but i mean that came out years after those games were in the con or in the arcade so yeah. i don't count that if that makes sense yeah the genesis was like altered beast was in the arcade the same time it came out on console golden axe golden axe that, yeah that was just to play that at home was insane that mm. because like that was a game you'd play again you'd play that game in the arcade seaside heights new jersey boardwalk like i probably played that in the arcade earlier that that year and then now i'm playing it at billy's in the billy's bedroom you know that mm. september or october whenever he got it and that's like a almost arcade port do you know what i mean like it's really really close to the arcade version isn't it uh from what i remember i mean that that's what blew us away about it yeah yeah did you kind of look after your games then and uh have you got any like we're going to talk about your collection later but have you got any of your childhood games in your collection no unfortunately i don't i sold a lot of them at a yard sale my grandparents had a yard sale when i was about i want to say i was like probably 14 early Mm. early high school at that point i was so heavily into pc gaming i i i i I barely had any Super Nintendo games. I, I basically almost skipped from NES to PC. So, or PC independently, because we had a, we had an IBM XT, but you know, NES games were better than that. But then PC games were better than console games once you got to like, you know, the early, the mid nineties. So I sold them all. I regretted that. And then I ended up buying a Funko Land used NES like, like three years later, not even four years later, I bought one and started, started getting those games again. That's what happens. I think I think we've all done that kind of got <laughs> yeah. rid of our old selections and bought them back again like a couple of years later. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely done that as well. So, what made you decide? You know, you know, you're like seventeen, eighteen by this point. What made you think like, you know, what I'm going to pick my, I'm going to go buy an NES again and start buying some of the old games from my childhood. I don't know if there was one event, but definitely emulation helped. Yeah, Nest uh, Nesticle blew yeah. up around ninety seven, ninety eight. And that's like the first where I remember size. I, I remember MAME. I remember someone telling me about MAME. Like, oh, you can play arcade games on your computer. And I was like, you can do what? Like, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe that you can do arcade perfect games uh, on your computer through emulation. Like, it was a whole new concept. But then Nesticle comes out. And it's like, that ran 98% of the games. Mm-hmm. Like, almost perfectly. You can say, oh, maybe the colors are off. But like, that was incredible back then how, how accurate that was and there were other that, and there were other emulators at the time i don't know if there was like rock nes and a few others but that one was so easy to use had, had the nice uh, interface mm. on it so it was a combination probably of that and also i always bring up ts tsr's nes archive one of the earliest sort of resources for nes information uh and it's still up they had mm. a forum there i believe ian said he used to post on the forum back then when i was, when I was probably reading the site and it really opened up a lot of things. Uh, it opened up my eyes to like the system things I didn't realize. Like, like I had no idea about all the unlicensed games. There would be yeah. almost no way to know the unlicensed games existed, yeah. uh, because Toys R Us didn't carry them, Kitty City didn't carry them, KB Toy Stores didn't carry them, uh, the mainstream stores didn't. So there would be no way for me to know that, you know, Wally Bear and the No Gang, the anti-drug game, actually existed. There would be no way for me to know that. Uh, wisdom tree and all the bible games existed you know what i mean so it was like wow this is like a totally new experience to this console that i owned and loved here's all these things i did not know about it now let's go explore so that really is what started i started i believe so then you had ebay around that time get popular as well like 96 97 ebay started to get more popular so it was like this confluence of different events that just kind of all happened at once and made you get back into collecting and stuff so um we've got a couple of questions later on about the uh collection 
we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, but let's touch on YouTube. How how did, you know, kind of Pat the NES Punk kind of come about? How did you get into YouTube? And what made you think, you know, I want to start making videos? So obviously YouTube was interesting uh, around 2005, 2006. Yeah. It started getting more well-known like 2006, I'll say. Yeah. Okay, it had been around for a couple of years before that. I had done short films before. I did a couple of short films. And I, did, I did a film in college as well. So I had some film experience uh, and obviously I had a collection by then, mm-hmm. by my mid twenties, I had a decent sized collection. I probably had, you know, f- over half the NES library. I probably yeah. had like 450 games. I probably had by 2000 and uh, eight is when I started the YouTube channel, June 20, yeah. June 24th, 2008 is when I uploaded baseball stars. So obviously I saw, I think the first, I, I saw James Rolfe's a, a brilliant ABGN videos. I think that I started, I think I first saw those in like, Someone turned me on to them. I forget how I discovered them. It was like fall 2006 when he had come out with like his uh, Jason and Freddy Krueger uh, Friday yeah. 13th uh, and Nightmare on Elm Street videos. And those were like the first ones I saw. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. It's like a comedic sort of skit, but you learn about the games. And then I didn't think much of it at the time for like a year and a half. But then I saw it's still on YouTube. I feel bad. I don't want to toss shade at, at this old video. I saw someone do a playthrough through an emulator uh, for the three stooges on nes and if you probably search for like nes three stooges it's probably if you can go by chronological chronological order it's probably one of the first videos and the person's playing through it you know they're playing with like a keyboard probably you, you can hear like their old their gateway 2000 stick mic they're using if you remember those those like thin mics used to bundle with computers yeah awful quality those yeah. uh, stick I, mics yeah you might as well use it use a use a cup and string at that point but anyway so the person is doing this i guess review and not only did not know how to play the game, but didn't even know who the Three Stooges were or like why the game had these mini games and that they were based off all classic short films. So like when I saw that, I'm like, this is like a dis- disservice to this game. And it's a disservice to have this out there because if, if you didn't know any better, you just think, oh, this is a crappy game. What is this about? So I figured I could I have the collection. I, I had a camcorder at the time that, that I had purchased. Uh, for my sister's wedding it's just a still st- still standard definition 2008 hd d- wasn't really taking a hold yet it took me like a couple more years for it to truly take hold so i i filmed it and i you know and i captured the gameplay i believe on on probably probably nesticle or uh maybe fwnes or something of that nature uh by that point maybe another emulator um and yeah that was what really started it i i believe and uh obviously you mentioned that you know, James Rolfe and AVGN, he's kind of, you know, grailed as one of the originals. And I always see you as one of the originals as well, because of around 2008, I remember when you kind of came about and you were one of the, other than James, probably the next kind of, you know, YouTuber I got into. But did you find it difficult to kind of stand out from the crowd and not, you know, because obviously there were so many kind of AVGN ripoffs at the time coming out oh, yeah. like that i didn't get i mean I, I i mean the cool thing about youtube is that you go back to the analytics you can see how many views your channel was getting even yeah. back then and like i put out a new video i was thrilled if i got you know 250 300 views i'd be thrilled yeah. by that i mean i i was um i i applied to that guy with the glasses i remember within like seven eight months i had like a good good uh, i already had like probably a dozen videos 10 10 or so 12 mm. videos within a year i was doing about one a month and they were like oh no we don't we don't need you basically 
and that's not to say that they were they may have poor taste and quality but like i was not getting any views if, like, mm. if i had like a lot of views they would have taken me no questions asked yeah but the good news is that even if the the mass audience didn't know me the other content creators somehow were made aware of me yeah so i remember going to like those early conventions earlier ones in like 2010 and the content creators knew who i i was yeah and i never contacted them before so like i remember linkara saying oh hey pat it's pat the nes and i'm like i heard of you you're a pretty you know you're a pretty big uh, content creator you know he, re- he reviews comic books but like how do you know me that was always weird to me and people at screw attack knew who, who i was yeah. um uh, uh, spoonie knew who i was yeah you know so and agreed to work with me pretty early so they respected my work the content creators respected my work even if i had not found an audience yet if mm-hmm. that makes sense and then for james i remember we were both going to be guests this is the first time i was gonna be guests. A, a true guest at a convention would have been uh screw attack gaming convention 2010 yeah i sent him just an email out of nowhere saying hey we're both going to be guests here i know you do these videos i do them too we're both from jersey even though i'd moved by then here's a, here's my here's a few of my videos i think i sent them like the russian attack video where i fight rob with a knife where i almost got stabbed in the face for real and then i sent them like my flea market madness video and like another one and he replied to me like yeah like, oh yeah you have, you have some nice this is some nice work or whatever we can we can talk at the convention that was a huge deal for me yeah that's why i love james because like james is real and he didn't have to do that he didn't have to reply to me i'm sure he at that point he was getting 100 emails a day still yeah and it was like it was like a validation like an early validation that that really helped me that was like okay i'm not getting and tons he- of views but at least these people like my stuff and YouTube felt like a bit more like a community back then because they had features like the uh, reply feature, I remember, where you could do a video and then someone would reply and there'd be like a, a chain going on and stuff like that. Yeah, it was interesting. But there was also a lot less people making videos, obviously. So yeah, like, yeah. the retro gaming, I guess, content creator community wasn't that big. You did not have a huge amount of people on it yeah. at the time. And, and, and due to the age demographics, that was popular like now we're all 40 or cl- or a mm. little bit older a little bit less back then we were all in our 20s mm. so like you see how the demographic has shifted in 15 years so now that content that would be popular would be like gamecube stuff mm. yeah so that's like how it's shifted already yeah. um but back then we were the we were not we were retro quote unquote but we weren't that old if that makes sense yeah we well we, we have that debate all the time because of you know when i started really getting into, collect, into collecting and you know 10 15 years ago i saw consoles like you know this nes this snes and and the dreamcast as retro but the reality was the dreamcast when i started collecting for it in like 2005 2006 was only a couple of years old and now you know i'm in in my mid-30s and it's like is the Xbox 360 retro now? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that, that Someone, was... I think, left a voice message on, on our podcast. Yeah. Saying that, like, kids at school were talking about how old and rare the PS2 is. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, I guess that makes sense. If you got a PS5, we're talking that's three console generations back. That's 20 years ago. Mm. I mean, they're wrong, the kids, but it's interesting how just time flies. and We're, we're, we're old med now already. <laughs> Well, one question we have to ask is, uh, why Pat the NES Punk? Um, obviously, everyone had a moniker at that time, for the most part. Everyone had like a pseudonym. 
and obviously it was like okay you have you have uh angry video game nerd well originally the angry nintendo nerd and they changed it mm. just in case nintendo went after him i believe i was like okay my name is pat i want to be known as pat uh in real life and if i go if i and if i ever got bigger that would be nice because i went to conventions and even to this day people call james nerd to his face mm-hmm. and it's embarrassing and it's unfortunate that there are people that did not understand that he was playing a character there's some people that actually thought he was real really mm-hmm. that and he did appearances early on in character he quickly stopped doing that because i think he realized this is bad to do this mm-hmm. to be like in character and people will think you're actually that person you know so yeah. like okay not that i was ever going to be as big as james but i was like okay if i ever get in that situation i don't want that to happen so okay i'm pat and this is pat and then nes punk just sort of like okay i'm um nes obviously that was my system du jour that that was my you know that was my specialty i guess and punk was like okay pat and punk it kind of rolls off the tongue and i had been accused of kind of acting like a punk in a, in a negative way before <laughs> Mo- mostly girls i'd gone on dates with like you're acting like <laughs> such a punk and i'm like okay this is I'm probably not gonna have a second date now so we love flea market madness and we love frank as well both me and ravi Will you be doing more of these or do you think it's too hard to find the bargains in the wild now? Um, I just tweeted out my flea market finds. I, I, I don't only go like once every three, four months now. It's just there's just nothing oh, okay. there anymore. Yeah. Not, not even just for game stuff. There's nothing in general. There's no deals mm. in general. Not even toys or I mean, anything else. I'm editing one right now. I, I, I think I did five this year that I edited. These are all shot though like five years ago. Mm. The last ones I shot were 2017. Oh, wow. What was the last ones I shot? That was the year before I moved. Mm. I shot a couple. So I have about, I think I'm at, I'm editing number 41 right now. And after that, yeah. I think there's like 11 left to yeah. edit. Thank God I edited them all. They're like, why are these so old? I'm sorry. I was working on a book. I was working on, <laughs> I was working on uh, other stuff, you know, video yeah. game years, things like that. I couldn't edit these right when I filmed them, but it was easy to, to shoot these. You just walk around. That's, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. simple. So yeah, there will be an ending to them when I run out of the ones to edit within a year or two, probably a couple years. And then I, I guess I would do like a final episode just to like tie it all together. I'm guessing yeah. that'd be like a number 53 or so. That'd be like the last one. That makes me feel on. a bit better because I do like to binge flea market madness. <laughs> well, I mean, would you want to binge me not finding anything? That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> then the past year, kind of depressing. Not, I mean, it is what it is. You know, it's people are walking around with masks and it's a different feel. Mm. So it's almost like maybe hopefully we get out of the pandemic, knock on wood where you know maybe things turn around a little bit but there's still a lot of sellers there's still a yeah. lot of sellers but the the mood had definitely changed once you got to about 2014 it got a lot harder to find deals that's yeah. when a lot more people got smartphones yeah and i think a lot of a lot of the a lot of uh there were a lot less people using the flea market or as you call it like the boot sale a lot less yeah. people were using that as their like personal yard sale if that makes sense i think a lot of people mm-hmm. then turned to ebay a lot more because they, they, they would look up their stuff oh these games are worth money i'll put it up on craigslist center put it up on ebay or now it's like what let it go or offer up apps when you had your youtube channel and uh you put you know your games out there that you were playing did other people contact you from other countries and say like oh we've never seen these games before and you kind of thought they were common titles um every now and then but i i looked at some games even early on that were not common Mm. even here like panic restaurant was one of the earlier ones i did 
uh, Action 52 I covered. Not It's funny, I covered that roughly around the same time that James did. James, I think James' review came out right after mine, and I was accused of being a copycat, even though my <laughs> video came out first. I always thought that was funny. So like a lot of that, a lot of those early games I try to focus on, I didn't do a lot of super popular ones all the time. So I think by that nature of the, of the size of the NES library, you know, in North America, it was like 770 games. That's a that's a pretty big library back then. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people discovered, I think, in general. But I did notice something peculiar, and so did Ian. On the first NES charity marathon in 2010 for the 25th anniversary of the NES, we had a lot of people from Scandinavia that were watching us, mm-hmm. that were saying, hey, shout out from uh, Sweden or Norway or, or, or Finland. And, and we're like, well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe the NES was slightly more popular of a system up there in northern europe maybe so it was it was really interesting to see that and then when i sold the first nes book i sold a lot of them to scandinavia more than i more so than like any other part of europe you went to retro spill messen as well didn't you i did as well yes yeah in norway yeah so i think like for some reason scandinavia really liked the nes i guess more that's probably made it closer analog to north america in europe maybe yeah, I, I imagine so because we—I've not been to Retro Spill Messen, but rather you've been, haven't you? So yeah, I, I imagine so. <laughs> you know, they're probably big fans there. So, um, at, at what point did you think to yourself, like, you know, content creating YouTube, amongst other things? We'll talk about the book and stuff in a moment. But at what point did you think I can make this a full-time job? And you know, how did that feel? Was it scary? Was it exciting? Uh, I never thought I could because when I quit my day job, it, I, I didn't have. I, I was barely making any money doing the videos. Uh, Blip was still big. Blip.tv. Mm-hmm. Was it Blip.tv? I think it was. God. And that was like the only way you can really monetize. Mass like monetization of YouTube videos didn't really come into existence until around 2013, 14 is when it kind of started, which was a shame because I should have uploaded everything to YouTube right away. I didn't. I, I uploaded it to my website via Blip because I wanted to make some money. Mm. which was bad because it didn't it that really hurt the growth of my channel not up uploading the videos right away and growing that community i was more concerned about short term not realizing it so i quit my job in, in summer 2012 and then like I, I took like a long time to recover because it was so depressing my job you know it was like i was probably depressed so i i we decided to do the podcast Ian and, and and me like the next summer of 2013 and then we also came up with the, with the, the book idea around the same time around that so it was almost like well, let's see where this goes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I'm going to be making money off this for sure. We we didn't know. So you um you mentioned the book there, um, which obviously came out. The first one came out in 2016. So we've got the Ultimate Nintendo Guide to the NES, and then obviously the SNES, which both look amazing. What made you decide to make those? You know, because like you say, you kind of quit your job, took a little bit of time out, you know, to get over the job and stuff like that. How did that kind of come about? The idea of right, I'm going to make this complete book. Why did you want to make that? And what was that like, that experience? I don't know. It was, I, I'm trying to remember what was the first impetus to, to do that. I thought it was an interesting sort of project. I always like bite off more than I can chew, I guess. Yeah. That's like, that's sort of like, like the story of my life where I attempt to, if you really look at the stuff, I I always try to attempt more uh, and, then, and then hopefully I don't fail. I like push myself. I remember at the time there was other video game books but they were none of them were like what i ended up producing none of them mm. were like that that much that much writing in depth for each game full color screenshots um uh, for game you know what i mean mm. uh and I, it's almost like with the with the nes punk stuff i i wanted to give credence to the to the nes library 
and I wanted to, I guess, make make a mark, I guess, in a way. But like, okay, but if I do nothing else, at least I did this book. I'm yeah. never going to have a review for every game, but at least I did this book, and I'll and I'll put out the best to my ability, like the best NES book out there. Like I'll try to do that at least. And I had no idea if people would buy it because there wasn't a book like that. Yeah, there were other uh, books like covering consoles, but again, they were not to the same depth or same writing quality or production quality. So when I did that Kickstarter, it was it was scary because mm. I had no idea if I was going to sell 100 copies, 1,000, 10. I really did not have a clue. There was no precedent for that at the time. Mm. And it sounds like you put a lot of effort in because they, they, they took three years to make. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are releasing books at the moment, and it's kind of good to have those out so early. Yeah, it's interesting. And that's and that's not, I'm not saying because of of the success of that book. That's why we have. I mean, there's tons of books now. They're great. There's ones that my pal Audi did one dedicated to just to all the wrestling games that ever existed. You yeah. know, there, there's ones about I think ones coming out like just covering platformers. There's one covering just all, all Sunsoft games. You know, things like that. So now it's like branch out in all these different directions, which is great. Um, I, I it's a totally different type of book. What what I what I've done is like I, the dumbest book to do probably because <laughs> it requires so much more work to play all these games and then to do a write-up and even and and to hire all these people to help you so if yeah. i was if i was a smart man i would have did something else i think because the <laughs> effort the effort I'm, I'm not this isn't a humble brag the effort is insane that goes yeah. into these books and the, wow. and the fact that i'm working on a third one right now i never thought i would do a second one that was going to be my next question because of you know i read online that it was in the end it was a a big print run you know which is really cool and you must be proud of that but yeah i was going to say are you doing a nintendo 64 book yeah gonna complete the uh, i guess the, the the trilogy if you can call it that yeah <laughs> of, of like nintendo's like you know cartridge consoles that be it i guess um yeah uh, i figured that the audience in n64 might be too old it might be gamecube library book would do better but um i figured that i i have the by now i definitely have the process down I had to get a new editor, and now I have a team of two editors. Okay. So we've gone through, th- through three editors. Now I have a better editing team than I ever had before. We have a better, stronger writing staff than we ever did before. Because uh, now I think people know what type of project it is, and they want to work on it. And obviously, I pay them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's now become its own thing, I guess. It's, it's, it's become its own engine or own franchise, which yeah. is weird. And so by that in that respect i'm like okay i think i have to do at least one more mm-hmm. and at nintendo 64 this is not going to be a three-year production this is going to be closer to two years because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's half the size of the other two libraries mm-hmm. there's only about there's only 400 games if you include all the japanese games will we ever see a wii u book <laughs> maybe not for me <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll franchise it as someone else but yeah. um but yeah so it'll be a two years in between conception for this book we started working on this book june of last year and okay. we're, over, we're over 90% of the review, reviews written because it's half the library and we have a stronger, more diverse uh, number of writers. We have we have uh, like up to 20 writers in this one. Oh, wow. On Super Nintendo, we only had about 10 mm-hmm. or 12. On NES, we had about 10, but I did most of the, I did the lion's share of the writing, which killed me. Mm-hmm. So, um, which by the way, there will be a fourth print run of the NES book. Oh, oh brilliant. Way. Yeah, they're still selling five years later thankfully mm. and so yeah, for the fourth, I was looking at amazon earlier for the fourth edition i'm going to change the formatting to match mm-hmm. more of the super nintendo book formatting mm-hmm. to clean mm-hmm. it up i will probably rewrite some of my reviews 
Ian said he might rewrite some of his reviews for better quality because I'm a better writer now five years later. Mm. Ian's a better writer, you know, just from he writes for the the podcast uh, Patreon. So like, I'd love to go back and clean that up. And then it's also, a, it's a marketing point too because he can say, hey, if you bought the first or second, you know, print, this is a definitely a different version. You're not saying you got to rebuy it, but it's definitely- You got to get with the variants. <laughs> yeah, and I, I almost want to go back. I almost feel bad for you folks. I, I Over there, I didn't, do the full uh, half pages for the pal games i almost feel like doing that because they get like a quarter of a page but mm. i but i included them mm. but uh but had i known i probably would have done full reviews for those 20 plus pal exclusives as well as well as well as like the 10 or so australian exclusives i would have done full page mm. or full half page covers of those maybe in the fourth print run then maybe <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, one thing is uh, when I watch your videos, you've got that absolutely amazing collection. Like, at one point, did you decide you needed to make it complete? Probably when I got to like 500 games. You can get to 400 to 500 games fairly easily on the NES in mm. North America. It's not that hard. Half, half of the library is common. So you can come across, back then, you can come across those at the flea markets and swap meets and game stores pretty easily. So I just started buying everything I didn't have. That's basically what happened. Like you go to a flea market. This is before I moved here. Uh, I go to flea market and I buy like a trash bag of like you know thirty NES games for twenty bucks. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't you buy all of them if that's the case? And then of course I'd have some doubles in there, but it's like they were so cheap they were almost giving them away for so long. Um, and then I was like, okay, let's go for it. Let's do it. And obviously I collected stuff before. I, I used to collect comic books in the nineties and I collected Star Wars toys in the nineties. Um, so I always had that collector mentality. But something about having a whole library of something just seems different versus like trying to collect every toy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're all. The, I'm looking at the shelf. They're all on the shelf in front of me. They display kind of like books. It's a bookshelf, technically, media shelf. So there was something about that that I sort of threw myself into it. And they weren't that much money. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So it wasn't like the average game cost back 15 years ago. I mean, the average game was probably still like four bucks. Yeah. Three yeah. bucks. Common games were three bucks still, two bucks. And then the rare ones. I guess a lot of them were only about twenty dollars for some of the rare. Yeah, ones so and stuff, like yeah. in the mid two thousands, most you weren't besides Steam events. There really wasn't games over a hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, there were still like fifty bucks. Like Little Samson, probably in the mid two thousands, was probably forty bucks. Yeah, I bought mine for ninety bucks. You know, by two thousand and I think eight nine. Yeah. It was it was still like around a hundred bucks. So with that in mind, what titles did become super hard to find? You know, and was there any funny stories of like super rare games that you found in crazy cheap places? Super rare games I found in like strange places. Yeah, like anything that's like you know worth you know a fortune now, but you you know you found it in the dollar store or something like that. No, I don't have those stories, unfortunately. I, I my friend at here had found a magical chase at a flea market, found a little Samson with the manual at the flea market from a reseller. Mm. I didn't. I, I found a couple of things, but nothing great. Like I found um. Oh, Zombie Nation at the time was worth probably 150 bucks. I think I found it for 10 bucks. I already had it. Like people say, oh, why would you buy them? Well, because I spent like 125 bucks on the original and I sold it to my collector friend that, you know, a big yeah, discount. Yeah. You know, so that's why I got it. That was my way of like making up for it. As I, I spent through yeah. the nose on a lot of those rare games. I never found them. I never could find them. That's the one thing you're, you're, everyone's going to tap me for. Oh, you resold that game. Yeah. Plus, it was from a seller I that didn't like, the Wario guy that I had. My <laughs> <laughs> the music just played in my head then. <laughs> the Russian attack. Yeah. So, so um, but not a lot. I did find, I did find, sorry to cut you off. I, I did find my boxed Rob 
yeah. where they sold just Rob with no games at all. Yeah. For, I don't know who would, would have done that and then bought Gyromite separately. It's so weird in the, <laughs> in the big box. Gyromite. But I did find that at like an antique store for like 10 bucks. Yeah, that's good. Back in like 2004 or five. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty cool. In the UK, Rob was always like really, really cheap until about 10 years ago. And then it just went through the roof. But before that, he was like, a couple of quid you'd find you know in the car boot sales and stuff like that yeah no one ever wanted rob until yeah, now no. he became like smash brothers and then he became like sort of the like the figurehead of uh, you know retro games and nintendo yeah. yeah exactly so was there any that come to mind you know on the opposite end of the spectrum any super 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 rare games you know kind of like you know flintstones stadium events anything like that were they like the big ones you had to kind of fork out for spend the big bucks on or did you get good deals on them I got a very good deal on same events. I'm embarrassed to say how good the deal was or else I never would have gotten that. Um, your version is cheap or was cheap. It might have gone up, but your version was always like 50 bucks, 100 bucks for mm. so Because <laughs> over there, it was uncommon. It wasn't like extremely rare like here. It was mm. always weird how well, for some reason in Europe, the Family Fun Fitness Pad was was more prevalent as, and same events was as well. So weird. But anyway, um now for a lot of the games i had to go on ebay for a lot of the rare games so i was paying closer to top dollar or some mm-hmm. conventions i probably got some decent deals on stuff but i never got like dirt cheap deals on anything except for steam events that mm-hmm. was really the only one well you've kind of previously joked about uh selling your whole collection um would you ever consider it and do you think it would be kind of impossible to start from scratch these days oh absolutely i am going to sell a chunk of my collection just because like having gone through a move four years ago it was insane to pack this all up and plus it's like i don't need all these i have dozens of boxed consoles just in the, in, in a separate room just being stored mm. and it's just i'd rather just sell it to people that would enjoy it you know what i mean like i have like 10 different nes boxed variants and it's mm. like i don't need all that it's three or four enough it's like is that yeah <laughs> and i'm fine and it's that like point. What once you've got like rooms taken up in your house and stuff, and you know it gets to that level. Yes. Yeah. And and where I live, you know, square footage is not cheap in San Diego, so it's like yeah, I don't have a basement either. So it's mm. like I envy those that have all that extra space. That's that's a little bit um, e- easier to come by. And so yeah, it's like yeah, if I didn't have this huge collection, obviously I work from home. I could have bought a smaller house. Would have would have saved a bunch of money. A bunch. <laughs> But it would have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know. <laughs> so speaking of which, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, retro game prices are through the roof at the moment. You know, you spoke about it on, the, on your podcast and stuff like that. What do you think of these unsavory rumors, et cetera, at the moment? About rated games? Yeah, rated games, everything just going through the roof. How do you feel about that? Well, we, we were the, one of the first to report on, on yeah. the shenanigans going on yeah, with yeah, Wada. Yeah. And the Pawn Stars appearances two and a half years ago. I'm sure if you if you're referencing the Carl Jobst video. Oh yeah, we've that, seen so. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say I got most of my information from you, but I was I wasn't trying to name drop like people too much. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting because we felt like crazy people. I've I've actually even had in person debates with like a gaming journalist, be like, dude, these people are connected. Don't you see that? Like mm. they're friends with each other, and like no one took us seriously until Carl did that video. Mm. and it's like that information was out there we talked about it a chunk of that stuff before not all mm. of it car went to amazing detail and really dug out more information especially about jim halpern and and, and like the the coin bubble in the 80s and that stuff mm. but like we were talking about this stuff and we we're just like being hand waved that's ah, nothing it's nothing so it, it's nice to see people finally 
look at the stuff with more more detail in the comment especially like all those articles that came out that were just puffing up the graded game stuff but in terms of the the non-graded game stuff the pandemic definitely gave it a shot in the arm uh prices were, were going down and down they peaked if you look at uh like price charting you look at I went to all these conventions over the past years. NES games, the the, the 70s stuff was dead. The, same, the 70s stuff, the stuff in the 70s and early 80s has been dead for 10 years. Mm. And no one's into that stuff anymore for the most part. But then the NES stuff started to follow suit the past like five years. NES collecting peaked like five years ago. Mm. So then you, well, I started going to conventions and then the NES games were just sitting there. No one was buying them. In 2019, for the first time ever, I went to conventions and I saw like dollar nes game bins wow. i had never seen that before in my life mm-hmm. so it's now it was now approaching atari level mm-hmm. where it's like okay here's a bag of atari games you know with mm-hmm. three for a dollar even so started seeing that but then i guess the pandemic happened and then what happened was people wanted something to do people were all at home and then you had at least in the u.s you had the stimulus money you had you had the first stimulus check mm-hmm. uh which a lot, a lot of Americans got. And then you had another one, you know, w- later in the year. And then, but then you also had like a lot of extra unemployment benefits and things like that. So I think a lot of people had a lot of money at their disposal that they didn't have before. So that really helped it. All the uh, crypto went up. <laughs> everything did. Like yeah. last year was like, okay, we have all this extra money. Let's invest in crypto and meme stocks. And you know what I mean? And, and Pokemon cards and all this stuff that like something weird happened last year. People went nuts. Like yeah. stuff, and, and retro games was one of it. Now, it, it and Ian, Ian was saying the same thing. It's like, yeah, you couldn't sell a, a Genesis or a Nintendo in 2019. Once you got the, once you got to the pandemic in 2020, it's like, yeah, you couldn't you couldn't keep any game console on the shelf. People were just coming in saying, you know, give me any game console to play. People were literally saying that to him. They didn't care what it was. It's interesting sociological uh, angle to it. Well, talking of Ian as well, um, you guys have a absolutely amazing podcast, CU Podcast. And the thing I love about it as well is that it's kind of cut up into video and that's something that we haven't dared do yet. Um, did you think it would be as big as it kind of was? And how did you and Ian meet? Uh, I I met Ian in 2008 when I visited San Diego for Comic-Con to see the Watchmen uh, trailer and, and panel there. It's like the world premiere of the trailer summer two thousand july 2008 and then i looked up local video game stores and there it was luna video games like 10 minutes from where i was staying and i was like okay let's go and he was working there and i talked him up i chatted him up it was interesting to see you know a mom and pop size you know retro game store i mean they existed but like they're, they're not everywhere they're not in every town in the u.s there's like in new jersey there's probably only a handful in the entire or what there were only like a handful probably the entire state uh at most in 2008 um so yeah funko lands were closed by then i think they got rid of all their old stock a few years before um and it become game stops proper uh but yeah we we hit it off and then you know i didn't see him again until uh the next spring when i came back and started looking for condos but um did i think it would have become as big as it did i no i don't know because podcasts were still pretty new in 2013 not not there weren't a lot of them when you looked at itunes at the time there were no like in almost no independent gaming podcasts at the time you had probably just us and retronauts yeah and you had like yeah. ign and GameSpot and whatever other defunct gaming website was still around then you know doing them and there were really not a lot of gaming podcasts 
So we 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 got pretty popular. I think even just the downloads uh, on like iTunes because there just wasn't anything out there. But then for the YouTube stuff, it was YouTube's always been a different audience than the audio listeners that have been separate. I think um, that took uh, I think a couple of years for people to really start getting into it, like a good year and a half, two years for the, for like the segments to really pick up steam. Yeah, we kind of hit the um, we hit it around the same time, and it's like you know it really just did take off, and and this was a time where. I think it was like the podcast second wave or third wave had, had, had just kind of started and we didn't really know about it, you know? Sure. And uh, now there's so many kind of commercial ones in there. It's really good to have these like independent podcasts standing out. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember going like we were only doing it. We only started doing weekly for two and a half years. Early 2019 is when we started doing the weekly ones. We were doing them every two weeks and we were still making like, we were still in the top like 20 of podcasts doing, you know, less than half the amount of all the other podcasts. Uh, so we were still doing well there. And each episode would like crack the top 10 back then. We're talking 2013, 14. So we were proud of ourselves for that. But, you know, it was still like just a hobby. We weren't like professionals at all. So uh, obviously you guys do, you know, your news and you, you know, you chop the podcast and upload it onto YouTube. Do you get a lot of people asking, you know, questions, you know, relating to like the old videos, a lot of people commenting on them and picking them up again? Or does, you know, people kind of, do the fans kind of just move with the podcast? Yeah, it's it's weird. The algorithm changed for, not just for my channel, a lot of the, the, the algorithm changed around spring of 2018. So three years ago, the algorithm, algorithm changed. It stopped recommending YouTube a lot of the older videos. Mm. So like, sort of, we, we had almost like evergreen videos, like the state of retro game collecting, for example. That mm. would constantly, I think, get recommended to people. And then YouTube changed and it became less about being focused on channels themselves and more about like content of the moment so i'd recommend mm. like the same thing you just heard but someone else talking about it if that makes mm. sense so we don't have a lot of people i think going back and watching old news clips i mean i can look but i i, I you know i i track the playlists you know broken up you know for the analytics between time periods basically and so i can see just by views oh yeah no one's watching the videos from like five six years ago mm. it's all mostly new stuff in the past few months so yeah it's not really an issue It'd be nice, it'd be fun to go back and watch those just to see how right or wrong we were about certain stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we did that. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but but a while ago we went back and listened to like our first couple of episodes. You know, we started about five years ago, and we do a new segment as well. And it was like we were talking about like, oh, the Final Fantasy VII remake has been announced. Hopefully, that'll come out soon. That was like 2014, mm-hmm. 2015. And <laughs> I, I predicted that the Switch would be a huge failure. That was a, a, a Did you really? You were one of those yeah. people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a running joke that Ravi said the Switch would be a failure. Oh, man. That, that, was, that was so weird at the time. Everyone was like, oh, Nintendo is done. This is going to be their last console. I was like, are you crazy? I was just like, there's no way this is going to be a failure. I said, I may not, it may not be Wii numbers, I said, but it's going to be a success. Mm. I gave all my reasons, and I, and I, and I, under, I undersold how well it would do. I think I said it would top off at like 45 million, and then it's, been, it's more than double that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what systems um, would you want to explore that you haven't really looked into, and uh, do you think you'll be looking at other stuff in the future? Um, I don't own, I own almost every every north american console i own from manavox odyssey up to ps2 but i do not own an original xbox i never bought one you don't have to swap me for some reason something told me not to buy it it's so weird i obviously every opportunity the last swap i went to i could have bought one that's mm. something i probably should have gotten because people make those you know emulation machines 
very easily. They're basically computers and they have the four controller ports. And that's a weird one I never, ever got into. Any any reason why or it's just never appealed to you or? I mean, at the time I had a PS2, but I, I basically had that as a DVD player and I was still yeah. into heavily into PC gaming, obviously. Yeah. Uh, then so, and in college, some people, kids had, you know, some people had like Halo and they loved it. Oh, this is so great. I'm like, this isn't better than playing Rogue Spear on my PC. Yeah. It's not better than playing Unreal Tournament. I just, I, I scoffed at it. I was a, you know, PC elitist when it came to first person shooters. <laughs> give me a mouse and a keyboard. I'm not, give me, don't give me your weird xbox controller that's hard to grip you know <laughs> that's what i thought about it that's it just makes me laugh hearing that from pat the nes punk <laughs> yeah so um our final question is what can we expect from you next you know you mentioned you've got the n64 book in the works have you got any other projects in the works that we're allowed to know about uh there's one there's one that you are not allowed to to know about you'll learn about it probably a year from now okay um so i can't talk about that one but it'll make sense once you see it. That's all I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> I probably we might be doing a Blu-ray remaster for video game years mm-hmm. that might be coming out next year because the 10th anniversary is next year for video game years. Oh wow, which is weird. I, yeah. I just had re- shown them all on my website. We re-uploaded them on, on uh, excuse me, on, on my YouTube channel from mm. 77 to 89. So that will be a thing. We'll see. Uh, there's always things that pop up here and there. I always have a, a few different things running. Obviously, more flea market madness, and I'll, I will do at least one or two NES Punk videos this year. Yeah, it's not as important, obviously, anymore. They don't do as well, and it's like mm. you know, been doing them for like thirteen years. It's kind of it's kind of harder to do them at this point. It's like it's like almost like be like a, a TV actor getting tired of doing the same yeah. TV show over a decade. It's like okay, can we work on something else now? Can we do something else. Yeah, but it's yeah. not going away. But it's just like yeah, I did. I think I did two last year and three the year before. They just don't justify the time I put into them that, that I have to put into them. Yeah, I, I read an article about how they're like 50 to 100 hours for you. And then obviously, you know, they're just not as lucrative as other projects and stuff like that, which I completely understand. But it's awesome to know that, you know, they're still there. Yeah, I mean, people still like them, but like it's times have changed. I'm not like 28, 29 with my short spiky hair. And it's like... <laughs> It gets it gets tougher. Like I I thought that when I did that Christmas episode in 2019, I I said this could be an end episode. How I ended it, mm. if I really wanted mm. to end it, it could have been. Some people thought it was. Yeah. And that and hey, that was a pal game. Uh, yeah, I, I remember days that before one. Christmas. I remember thinking because I remember when AVGM did his episode 100, and I think he kind of I think it was around then he said that was you know he was done for a while. And I remember thinking when I saw the Christmas one, I was like, oh, Pat's done, kind of thing. But then. Obviously, I was like, "Well, he's still got the podcast and everything, but we're still here." Yeah, and I, and awesome. I did the Pac-Man episode after that, but no one watched it last year. <laughs> um, and then I did the, um, I did the Christmas-ish one last year, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Like, so, uh, so even if I do simpler ones, I think I'll still do them here and there. Yeah. But yeah, it's like I have too much going on. I mean, mm. I used to have two podcasts. Mm. I only have one now, but that's weekly, so it's like it's tough. And then with the book, you know, the project I can't talk about. There's always there's always stuff going on here. Yeah. at castle country that keeps me busy and then awesome. conventions conventions are back yeah yeah conventions are back i went to my first one in the uk last week so how was awesome it as well it was busy really 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 busy um, you couldn't get to the tables could I, you? Couldn't, I couldn't um, get to the tables i couldn't get to the games couldn't get to the people um you know i had to wait for it to calm down a little bit and it's you know it's all a little bit scary because we've all been locked up and stuff like that for like the last year and a half but it was good i'm, I'm glad i went I've been going to museums as well. Uh, they're a bit, they're a bit smaller and less chaotic, but still get to play on retro games and stuff. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Pat. That's been absolutely amazing. Yeah, I appreciate it. And congratulations on the success of the Retro Hour. No, thank you. That means a lot.